So this is a reality check for me now that I'm really not a kid anymore. How old is that song? Does anybody know? Less than two. That's what I think, June. Thank you. Now, uh, Kim, Kim had the right answer. That song is from 1995, which makes it about 20 years old. I know. I remember listening to that song and singing, and in my head I'm the same person, but I was actually 12 years old. And I know I just made some enemies now probably by telling you that. Sorry. The funny thing is that song is 20 years old, which doesn't seem that old in the grand scheme of things. But it asks a question that people have been asking forever. What if God was one of us? You may never have thought about it this way before, but it's the same question that this guy was answering. You might be familiar with him. (laughs) Right? God made into human flesh Jesus Christ in the Christian tradition. I bet you never thought of the Bible as like a really deep prequel to a Joan Osborne song before. (laughs) But it is. What if God was one of us? It is kind of the question that religion has been about since the beginning, and even before religion, that stories, epic tales, myths of heroes and legends, long before Jesus. Stories about gods and falling gods and demigods, all of this interaction between the gods' world and the human world, gods getting into arguments with the humans, gods taking sides with the humans, yes, sometimes even falling in love with the humans. You've probably heard of Hercules, one of the most well-known characters in Greek mythology. Hercules was the product of a mixed marriage. A blended family, you might say. A relationship between humans and gods. These were Hercules' parents right here. That Zeus. That human woman, by the way, not Zeus's wife. It was apparently complicated. And we are still telling this story in some ways, right? Hermione Granger, ring a bell? The wizard born to muggle parents? We're still working through this idea throughout all of human history, mythology and literature and religion, that our gods and our heroes are people who came from a place where they were different, a place that didn't understand them, some kind of difficult family or background. It's interesting that that's a theme in our hero literature, that there's something from that place that they were rooted that they have to overcome. The two main characters of our movie today that I'm preaching about for our Spirit Flicks series that Reverend Ken and I do every summer, where we find meaning in movies, some of the current movies that are out right now and some that we just like from the past. Today, I wanted to talk to you guys about Moana. It's the latest Disney movie. Some of you are probably very familiar with it, maybe too familiar with it. Any parents here who've seen this movie a few times? Yeah. And then some of you may have never seen it. It is a kids animated film. It's pretty wonderful, I have to say. Um, There are pluses and minuses like there are to any Disney movie, for sure. But the main character in this movie is a different kind of Disney princess, for sure. And the two main characters in this movie, Moana, can relate to this idea of coming from a difficult background, a place where there might be some conflict between their home and their aspirations. The two main characters here are Moana on the left and Maui on the right. 
Moana is a young woman who lives on a Polynesian island thousands of years ago. And she finds herself at odds as she grows up with her father, who is the chief on the island. He has one pretty strict rule, which is that no one can sail beyond the reef. That is the barrier between the ocean out there and the island where they live. She feels a little bit hemmed in by this. She finds, if you know the main song in the movie, that the ocean is calling to her. That every time she does anything, she ends up back at that shore gazing out at the ocean and wondering how deep it is, how far it goes. It is one of the things that she wants most deeply to explore out beyond that reef. And it is the one thing her father makes clear. In a relationship where otherwise he's very supportive and encouraging of her, she will be the leader of their tribe one day. But he makes clear that going beyond the reef is not okay. And then there's Maui, who is one of these demigod characters. In the story in this movie, we learn that he had human parents. But when he was born, he was kind of a runt. He was premature. And they threw him into the ocean. There's a lot of pain in this movie for a Disney movie for kids that Maui gets across of how hard that was to know that his parents took one look at him, he said, and tossed him away. He was found by the gods and raised by them. And that's how he has his powers. He has this big fish hook that they gave him. So again, this demigod, this where do I live, where do I fit in with these powerful gods or with these very flawed and failing humans? I looked into the background of this movie a little bit because I was curious whether it was drawing on real stories and myths from the Polynesian islands. And it turns out it was in some ways. In fact, there's one point of connection that it has that's fascinating to the real history of this place on Earth. And if you're like me, you needed a little bit of a geography reminder, right, where we're talking about. So there's a triangle here that gets drawn between New Zealand, Hawaii, and Easter Island. And everything within it in the Pacific Ocean is typically considered the Polynesian islands. These were volcanic islands. So they didn't break off from some other part of a continent. They actually were eruptions of volcanoes that came out of the ocean and formed land masses. So they were uninhabited. No one lived on them for a long, 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 long time. Until about 3,500 years ago about 1,500 years before that whole Jesus story ever started. That was when a certain tribe of people built these canoes, these seafaring canoes that are really amazing examples of technology for the time, a canoe that could actually go the distance between a place like Solomon Islands out on the left there and Fiji, which is a huge distance. I don't know if this is to scale. It's probably not. But see, USA and Hawaii, that's almost the same distance. And 3,500 years ago, The people who lived on the western half of this map, in some of those closer-in islands like the Solomon Islands, they sailed these huge seafaring canoes to settle in on places that were closer in, like Fiji and Tonga and Samoa. They had a whole culture built around voyaging and exploration and seafaring for generations. And then historians say there was something that no one could explain. They call it the Long Pause, capital L, capital P. 
Evidence shows that after hundreds and generations, hundreds of years of building these seafaring ships and culture and wayfaring, they just stopped for 2,000 years. They didn't go anywhere anymore. If you've seen Moana, you know that they're drawing on this story. And once they started voyaging again, very rapidly, within a couple hundred years, they discovered and settled nearly every inhabitable island in the East and Central Pacific. So no one knows why there was that 2,000-year pause. And no one knows why it started up again after that. I don't want to give you any spoilers. But if you've seen the movie, this will sound familiar. Moana, the story told in the movie, fills in the space in that very real historical mystery of how this exploration stopped and then started again. Now, it's certainly been Disney-fied, as every Disney story is. But my point in highlighting this is that these things draw on real stories from real people. And the Maui character also draws on real stories. The demigod Maui represents a set of real stories from the ancient myths of the Polynesian islands. Much like stories about Hercules were told all across the Mediterranean, stories about Maui were told all across this part of the world. And one of the interesting differences in the stories that get told in places like Hawaii versus Tonga versus Samoa versus Fiji versus Tahiti is how much God and how much human Maui is. There are differences between, well, in this part of the world, his parents were human. In this part of the world, his parents were gods. In this part, he had a Hercules situation, right? One of each. And it's fascinating to me that that is the piece that's different. This debate of how much God and how much human our heroes are. It's actually the same debate that Unitarians have been involved in about Jesus since the beginning of the Christian church. This question of how much our heroes are like us and how much they are something different and separate and higher than us. It's not just about theology. It's related to something that is, I think, much more personal and intimate that we all carry. Who our heroes are and how much they're like us or different than us can shape our aspirations for ourselves our expectations of what we can do, and our relationships with other people. I think it shapes our relationships no more so than with the first set of heroes that we know in our lives, our parents. Now, all of us have different experiences and relationships with our parents. And yet, most of us, if we've made it here today, had early years where some adult figure, whether it was your parents or not, gave you everything you needed to survive. They fed you. They literally gave you food that you would not have otherwise had the ability to get. There is a lot of literature in developmental psychology that talks about how our first phase of knowing and relating to the world is often seeing our parents as God figures. They are our first and our most trusted source for how we learn about any of this. For our first few years, we have no reason to believe that they don't know everything. And we have no reason not to believe everything they say. 
And we all benefit from that because it means that we can read hilarious lists online of the lies that people's parents told them to get them to behave, right? I have personal experience with this. I was watching my friend's daughter, Sydney, once. She really wanted to open a present that I knew she wasn't supposed to open yet. And I just, I realized, I was like, you know what? Let me try just telling her that I don't know how. Maybe she'll buy it. Totally bought it. I don't know how to open that. I'm sorry, Sydney. I can't help you. Uh, There are some really funny ones out there, like this one. My dad told me that the ice cream truck played music when all the ice cream was gone. That is a good one. I wonder how long that works, right? Another one, my, my roommate grew up on a farm, and her parents told her their TV only worked when it rained. You've got to save money on that electric bill, right? I like this one from a mother. I told my kids that if they didn't behave in the drive-thru, they'd get a sad meal. (laughs) Some of you are going to like this one. My grandma told us that smelling each other's farts would make us stronger. (laughs) Worst Christmas ever for us. Funniest Christmas ever for her. And this, this, yeah, that's good. This is, this is the last one. This one is actually my favorite. My dad told me that people only get 10,000 words per month. If you reach the limit, you can't physically speak until the new month begins. So anytime I was especially talkative, dad would say, oh, careful, you're over 9,000 by now. I bet some of you parents have some stories that you could tell. Maybe some of you have stories you could tell about your parents. And I want to hear them after the service. And then there's a different kind of belief that our parents share with us. There's a different way that they shape how we learn about the world. That's not about lies. But maybe just things that we saw in our houses growing up that we thought everyone experienced. Things that we thought were normal. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine used to uh, have these pleasant memories of any time he would get sick, his mother would make this for him, this piece of food right here. Now, some of you have seen that before. You know what that is. The only time he ever had it was when he was sick, so his mom would bring it to him and put it down in front of him, and he would eat it. And when he grew up and graduated college, he was moving in with roommates in an apartment for the first time, and they were nervous about money and how they were going to get by. And one of his friends said, don't worry, we'll just have ramen dinners all the time. And he said, what's a ramen dinner? And the guy said, you never had ramen noodles? He said, no. He said, well, I'll buy some. A couple days later, he, his roommate bought some ramen noodles, made them for him, put them down in front of my friend, and my friend took one look at the bowl and said, oh, curly noodle soup. <laughs> He didn't know what it was called. I have an example, too, from my house growing up. My mother was raised in an area outside of Scranton, Pennsylvania, and her father was a coal miner before she was born and then worked for the streets department afterwards. Her mother sewed in a factory, and they had a lot of lean times when food was hard to come by. So sometimes my mom's meal would be a slice of white bread, open face, 
with sour cream on it. Pretty good nutritional value, actually, for when you don't have much food. So my mom, when I was growing up, would sometimes make herself a slice of white bread with sour cream on it because it reminded her of home. And I then grew up having that remind me of home and also thinking it was a normal snack, (laughs) which I didn't realize it wasn't until I went away to college and walked back to sit with my friends in the dining hall with my tray, with my main course and my salad and my drink, and on the side, a little plate with a slice of white bread and some sour cream on it. And my friend said, what are you eating? (laughs) But I just didn't know. I think everyone has some version of their curly noodle soup or their sour cream, sour cream with white bread, open-faced sandwich. Everybody has some wake-up call moment in their life when they realize that the things that happened in their home with their parents didn't necessarily happen with everybody else's parents. Our parents shape our world. It's pretty unavoidable. It can be wonderful. It can give us incredible gifts for our lives. And sometimes it's more complicated than that. In this movie, both of our main characters experience this. Moana and her father like I said before, have a pretty good relationship. And yet this one thing that he tells her she can't do is undeniably the thing that she craves the most. It is the thing that calls to her. And it takes her tremendous energy to be brave enough to defy him who she loves and trusts herself on this one with no guarantees, by the way, that it would work out. And yet her defiance of his rule in this case ends up being the key to saving her entire people. It was the right call. And Maui, the demigod, feels completely abandoned by his human parents, and that ends up driving him for the rest of his life. When he tells Moana, they threw me away, He said, so I used all of my powers to give the humans everything they could ever want. And yet it was never enough. For him, it didn't work. In fact, as we see in the movie, it was his need and his desire that was often unconscious and uncontrolled. It made him make some unwise decisions. He took things that weren't his to take. And it ended up putting the very place that he called home in danger. What a real tension and struggle this is for all of us. Wanting nothing more than to do the right thing for our families or give the best back to our parents or forward to our kids. The people we love. That drive in us sometimes can blind us to an honest inventory of what we really need in those relationships. It can blind us from seeing what isn't ours to take in the first place. 
this parent God stuff is uncomfortable. I've yet to meet a parent who goes, oh, yeah, my kids see me as a God. I'm comfortable with that. (laughs) It's tough. It's a lot of responsibility. It asks us all to build a healthy relationship with our power in the world, which is not a quick fix, read one article and you'll figure out how to do it kind of thing. Just like the rest of spiritual life, it really is a journey, a journey that we each walk for our whole lives. And there are precious few resources, unfortunately, in our world to really support and encourage and help us in figuring out a healthy relationship to that power. I read an article recently that resonated with me really deeply. Part of why I liked it so much is because it's not written by a psychologist or any kind of special expert. It's written by a woman who is a mom and a wife and a daughter. Her name is Annie Renault. And in this article that she calls A Love Letter to the Cycle Breakers, she talks about her observation of the world that there are superheroes living among us who we don't see. Superheroes like her father. She said growing up she heard only certain stories and parts of stories about her father's life. She heard about a grandfather who beat his wife. She heard stories about a grandfather chasing his sons down an alley with his police pistol. She heard stories about a mother who struggled with alcoholism and anger. She heard stories about six siblings from six different fathers. A story about a precious violin that got smashed to pieces in a drunken rage. She said, bit by bit, the picture of my father's upbringing was painted in these slashes of blacks and blues. He didn't tell us everything, she said. Just enough to give us some sense of where he came from. She says, now that I have three kids of my own and a keen understanding of how difficult parenting is in the best and healthiest of circumstances, she said, I recognize my dad for the cycle-breaking hero that he was because the hell that he lived through as a kid simply because he happened to be born into a wounded family for no other reason. She said, that easily could have been my own fate. These cycles of addiction and abuse, the inheritance of personal and parental tools that were in need of serious repair and help passing down bitterness and rage like family heirlooms. She said, I've witnessed these phenomena in other families over the years. It is the easiest thing for mortals to be human. She has no idea why, but she knows that there came some day when her father decided to duck into a phone booth, she calls it, to put on a cape, to get help, to do the work. He took on the monsters that followed him, she said. 
he decided he was going to do his best to give his children the childhood that he didn't have. And she said for the most part, he succeeded. There were occasional losing battles, she said, where she could see his jaw clenched, his eyes flashing, changing the weight of the air in the room around them. She remembered her father's apologies for those battles that were lost. She remembers wary visits with uncles and grandparents, a dim awareness of the unease of what was going on, the grief of her dad's younger brother's suicide when she was 10. Too young, she said, to understand that my uncle had been fighting the same war as my dad, but he had lost. And she also remembers his successes watching him leave in the evening to attend adult children of alcoholics meetings where he could talk about what it was like to try to raise his own kids differently with other people who understood. She remembers what struggle and like on his face. She remembers watching him take deep breaths sometimes. She remembers watching him strain his brow when he took on those monsters. In time, she learned how to give him the space that he would need. She learned what the tools were for him that he chose, the things that sustained him in that fight, which for him were his faith, prayer, books, some regular routine in his life, making time to decompress, and apparently classic rock albums. He certainly wasn't perfect, but she said the fact that he kept returning to that phone booth defines his fatherhood for me. She said, I admire my dad for many reasons, but none so much as his courage and fortitude on the internal battlefield. After she tells us the story about her dad, Annie Renault shifts her attention to that love letter to everybody who is a cycle breaker. Sometimes that happens in our own homes. Sometimes it happens in our communities or in our world. She says, for every one of you who is a cycle breaker out there, the rewards of your efforts are vast and far-reaching. You are protecting your own family, yes, But your feats also positively impact society. Raising kids with minimal damage is a gift to the world. There is probably no sentence that better encapsulates the thing that drives me in this world more than that. Because I've seen the efforts in my own family to raise me with less hurt than my parents had to deal with. Raising kids with minimal damage is a gift to the world. How many people have been held back from the gifts that they could share with others because of the cycles of hurt that are visited upon them? These things that we do in our families are not small. They matter far beyond our homes. And by the way, healing any damage that we have experienced is also a gift to the world not too late. 
to do so. Part of what I love about the fact that this is a Disney movie for kids is that it gives an appropriate way for kids to learn and talk about how these things can happen at any age. How kids pick up on the hurt around them and that the healing can start when they are young. They don't need to be protected from everything because they will know certain things are happening. And this movie gives us an example of a demigod who I guess is a couple thousand years old, so that's probably a bad example, but Moana, who is a teenage girl. People who can talk about the difficulties that they have inherited from their parents and can heal from them. Both Maui and Moana had to do a little bit of healing work. They had to learn to build healthy relationships with their own power and with the forces of power that were in their lives, that shaped their lives. Moana had to navigate this difficult thing that I think every one of us can relate to with our parents. How much independence is right? How much defiance is actually healthy? That's a tough one for parents of teenagers, right? Moana herself needed to learn about discernment and self-awareness to see the difference between her defiance that might be motivated by avoidance or reactivity or her own pain and defiance that's motivated by purpose, defiance that protected her own integrity, her own health. And Maui had to learn that he didn't need to sacrifice all of his energy in service to this duty to win back something he lost. He didn't need to sacrifice all of his energy to maintain the strength of his gifts and powers that he thought made him who he was. He could actually be loved just by being. So on Father's Day, I hope we take this as a lesson to walk in the world. For all of the dads that are out there, I hope I'm never so presumptuous as to try to tell you how to parent. And for all the people out there with dads, I'm not going to tell you what honoring your father on this day looks like for you. But I hope that we trust, just like Moana did, that even if it's scary or unfamiliar or hard, we do know the way. Whether it's a heartfelt celebration or whether it's finding a way to heal. Whatever gifts we've received, together there is some way we can find to transform them into healing and saving gifts for the world, for ourselves, and for all the people we love. May we find that courage and the love and support that helps us get there. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God, that is the image of love, a love so perfect, so unattainable, that we call it God, that we recognize it is something different from us, and yet we are drawn to it. It calls to us. And when we connect with that higher source of love, it sustains us.
it can teach us something. We can form ourselves sometimes in its image. May you always stay with us, this image of a love beyond belief. May we not treat ourselves too harshly for not being you. And may we not give up on the fact that we are worthy of this presence of love in our lives. For these prayers I've spoken out loud and for the prayers that each of these people carries in their hearts today, we say amen.